Since I'm the father of one son and another child on the way, I had to do one thing, to get good at telling dad jokes. But since I'm not very good at that, I did the obvious and I downloaded a dad joke app on my phone. And one of the jokes went like this. I just read a book about Stockholm Syndrome. It was pretty bad at first, but by the end of it, I liked it. Stockholm Syndrome, if you aren't familiar, is where, for instance, someone who was held by a captor would, once they're freed, would return back to their captor because they've become attached to them or they've liked them, uh, they've become addicted to them in some way. St. Paul in Romans chapter 8 talks about spiritual Stockholm Syndrome. That is returning to our captor, our debtor, our captor of sin, who wants to do us harm. Paul had taught the Romans and he's taught us that, that in baptism, our sinful nature is drowned. It's put to death. And now Paul invites us to, to draw a conclusion. He asks us, well, how now do you suppose that you're supposed to live? Do you return back to your former way of life? Do you return back to your captor? back to your sin? Absolutely not, he says, because you have been united to Christ in baptism and your sinful self has been crucified with him. And so, dear brother or sister in Christ, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. But living according to the flesh is exactly the message of false prophets. See, a false prophet doesn't necessarily have to blatantly lie to you and tell you that a sin is not a sin, that it's okay. A false prophet doesn't even need to say, for instance, that, a, that adultery or abortion is okay. A false prophet is a wolf in sheep's clothing. They're usually more cunning than that. A false prophet attracts by preaching whatever itching ears want to hear. Today that usually comes in the form of self-help or motivational preachers. And it's almost universally common today in, in, in many newer churches. It's usually a bad sign if you walk out of church thinking, well, that preacher made me feel really good about myself. In the rest of Christianity, we have a term for that, moralistic therapeutic deism. It's exactly what Jesus warned against in our gospel, a preacher that uses the name of God, deism, but in such a way as to make you believe that you have the power within yourself to improve your own self and live a better life for God. Moralistic therapeutic deism. And this is very appealing. In fact, some of the fastest growing churches that I can think of have this as their message. A true preacher of God's word would never make you feel good about yourself, but about what Jesus has done for you. About God's love for you, not based on who you are or what you've done, but purely on God's mercy. But why would anyone listen to a false prophet? 
Well, because your sinful nature and mine is each of our very own personal false prophet. Our sinful self, like our own very personal false prophet, twists God's word and tries telling us that because we've been baptized, that we're no longer debtors, which means we, we can do whatever we want. We're free. And it tempts us with the thought of being our own boss, of being free. It wants us to look to ourselves rather than to Christ. And it tells us, well, you owe it. You owe it to yourself to do this thing. You owe it to yourself. And besides, even if you do that thing, God forgives you. It's not a big deal. And we might think this is the most freeing thing of all, to do whatever we want. But really, this just proves us to be slaves to our own sinful self. We return back to our captor. We show ourselves to have spiritual Stockholm Syndrome. And so a false prophet will preach self-help. You have the power to help yourself. A preacher of God's word will preach what only our help can achieve. And with St. Paul, say, For you, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. This is a terrifying result of being indebted to our flesh, of being our own personal false prophet. It demands everything and it gives us nothing lasting in return. And the only way to live, according to St. Paul, is to put to death the deeds of our flesh. And in fact, the, the phrase to put to death the deeds of the, of the body also accurately describes how it feels when we do it. It hurts. It hurts a lot. Resisting sin and temptation feels like we're cheating ourselves. It feels like we're missing out on something fun and exciting. It feels like we are denying ourselves something that we think we need and want so much. It feels like we are denying ourselves when we put to death the deeds of the flesh. Cutting off temptation and addiction that have been allowed to take over our flesh may make us feel empty and dead. But thankfully, Salvation isn't secured by how we feel. Feeling this way, as opposed to feeling good about ourselves, because we struggled hard against sin, is actually a sign that the Holy Spirit is working in us. And He won't leave us alone. He's promised to be there right alongside of us, through baptism, helping us to live a new life. Putting to death the deeds of the body and living a new life isn't something that God scares us into doing. It's not something that God forces us to do like we're his slaves. No, St. Paul gives us the proper motivation. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to be afraid, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. We are not slaves. We're sons. We're adopted by God through baptism. I had a conversation with a man very recently about this very thing. He, he, he had been led to believe that, that baptism was something that, that he did for God. Uh, that, that it was um, uh, his, uh, what did he, how did he put it? Uh, his um, 
his work for God, uh, his debt to God. And he was scared and afraid that because he'd been baptized long ago when he was a child, he wasn't sure if, if he actually meant it or if, or if it counted. And so he thought that he should get baptized again and make a new covenant to God. And he asked me about it. And I said, well, I would say baptism is a covenant, but not a covenant that you make to God, but it's a covenant God makes to you. It's where God puts his stamp of approval on you. It's where God makes you his child, not because of anything that you've done, but purely out of his grace. And it was probably one of the, the coolest things that I've seen this year. You could just see the, the weight, the burden being lifted off of his shoulders because he, had been, because he had heard the gospel, that it wasn't dependent on him, that God loved him and baptized him. And this, this picture of adoption, it's awesome. It's really the opposite of Stockholm Syndrome. It's pure grace. Because if a child has no parents left, left to be adopted, there's nothing that child can do to get parents. He can't buy parents. He can't clean his room enough to make parents want him. The child is trapped, a slave of the system with no way out. But when parents come along and they adopt him, they adopt him because of their love and their grace, not because of anything that child did. And immediately, immediately, that child that was a slave of the system is now a son. That's what God has done for us in baptism. He's adopted us. He's adopted you as his child. You are God's free child with faith worked by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit bears witness with you that you are God's child. In fact, he calls you a son of God. He helps you to live deliberately, deliberately as a Christian. And he started from the moment you were baptized. In our baptismal rite, we have this phrase. Do you renounce the devil and all his works and all his ways? Seems a little bit formal, but really you're, you're saying, do you put the death, the deeds of the body? And the Holy Spirit, through baptism, gives you the power to actually do this. And in the Lord's Supper, he does the same thing. In the small catechism, we confess that we wish to go to the sacrament often, that I may believe that Christ died for my sin out of great love, out of his great love, and that I may also learn of him to love God and love my neighbor, to do those things that please God. We need the Holy Spirit's help as long as we live in this world. And he gives it through these means. And through these, he declares that we are sons of God. And because we are sons, we are heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Because Christ put to death all of our sins, because the Holy Spirit united us with Christ in baptism, and he helps us to continually put to, put to death our sins. We are heirs with Christ in everything that he won. Glory, everlasting life, and eternity without death or temptation. This is our eternal inheritance. 
And yet before we receive the full benefits of that, we know that we suffer here on earth. St. Paul finishes up by saying, if indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may be glorified with him. Salvation is in connection with and in union with Christ. But what did Christ come to do? Christ came to suffer. And if we're connected to Christ, we'll suffer too. A couple of weeks ago, a number of, a number of us visited the full-size replica of Noah's Ark at the Ark Encounter. Just think of the Ark for a second. Noah built the Ark over a period of 120 years. Just think, how many temptations was he faced with over that time? How many sufferings? His friends and neighbors not only thought Noah was crazy for listening to God's laws and not giving in to his sinful flesh like they did, but they ridiculed Noah for building this massive boat in the middle of nowhere simply because God told him to do it. But pretty soon the ark was complete and all the animals and people that God desired were in the ark. God shut the door. And he lifted Noah and his family above all the problems and temptations of the world through water. That's what God does for us. God has told us to build an ark too. We call it Faith Lutheran Church. And we call it the whole Christian church on earth. He hasn't told us whether it should be made out of wood or brick. But he has told us how to build it. Namely, through the word through baptism, and through the Lord's Supper. And the ark of the church is made whenever and wherever believers gather around the means of grace. And it's here where the Holy Spirit gives us the power to resist falling back into being slaves of our own flesh. God saves us from returning back to our captor. And in the meantime, we're ridiculed. We're ridiculed by our friends and our neighbors who think we're foolish for following God's laws. And we're foolish for, for assembling in this thing every Sunday, in this, this ark we call the church. But it's in this church, our ark, that God keeps us safe. And when everyone is in the church that God desires, God himself will shut the door. And he'll lift us and the entire church out of all the problems and sufferings of this world, above all the temptation of this world, all the sufferings and temptation of our flesh, and bring us in this ark safely to the glory of heaven. Through baptism, God has saved us from being slaves, and he's made us sons. In Jesus' name, amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, forevermore. Amen.